Hello, hello. Welcome to another episode of How I Crushed It, the podcast that shines a light on talent in the community. You're listening to Tunde. Now, this week, you're about to hear an interview with PR extraordinaire Jessica Hope. She is founder and managing director of Wimbart, a London-based boutique PR agency which specializes in the African tech startup sector. Now, I originally bumped into Jessica on the seminar circuit uh, about seven, eight years ago, and I've been interested in her journey ever since then. On the show, she talks about how what she's learned as a leader of people over the years, getting involved in the film industry in Nollywood, and her fear of public speaking. Check it out. So welcome to the show, Jessica Hope. How are you today? I'm very well, thank you. Thanks so much for having me, Tunde. Oh no, the pleasure is entirely ours. Now for people that don't know, and you probably don't remember me as well, but I think we met at some kind of function well over, or maybe around about 10 years ago, because at the time I was working for an African-focused search firm. And about that time, you were probably about launching your business. So it's great to be in contact with you again. And I guess you're probably aware of the format of the show. We always kick things off by going right back to the beginning. So where did things kick off for you? Where did you grow up and and how were the first initial years of your your life growing up? Okay, thanks very much for that. Uh, So I think I uh, will start with the fact that I was born in London, uh, lived in South London, um, but my parents got divorced when I was about four and my mum moved back to Devon and my dad stayed in London. Uh, so I spent half of my year in Devon and half the year in South London. I see. So how how were the two different back then? Because I know Devon is always painted to be quite an idyllic place, but how was that for you growing up there? <laughs> yeah, it was kind of extreme, I guess. Um, as I say, yeah, Devon is kind of, in some ways, feels kind of shut off from the real world. Um, but again, it's, as you say, it's idyllic. Uh, grew up by the sea. Uh, I went to one big school in a sort of a big town, so everyone kind of knew everybody kind of quite close-knit community. Uh, And then my time spent in London, obviously much much larger. I was, you know, much easier to sort of get lost in a much bigger pool of people. Um, I spent a lot of time with my grandparents uh, and my dad. Um, My grandparents lived on Wimbart Road, which then became obviously the the reason for me naming my company Wimbart. Yes, I did read that elsewhere. That's great. And are your family from Guyana? Is Is that correct? Yeah, my granddad uh, came over from Guyana, um, so he was Guyanese, and um, he was got together with my grandma, I guess probably late 40s, early 50s, and they uh, had two sons together, and then they brought over my granddad's son from Guyana as well. I see. So how, how were your school years? Did, did you go to a school in London or in, in Devon? So I went to school in Devon. It was okay. a really, really big uh, comprehensive school uh, for secondary school. Uh, I think like two and a half thousand people in the in the school. Uh, so huge. I was like super nerdy at school, um, kind of almost, except for say maths, pretty much straight A student. Uh, used to play chess a lot. I definitely wasn't a popular kid, um, as in I wasn't part of the cool crew, but I had this amazing tribe of friends. I had a lot of friends at school. Uh, found my tribe early on and they're still my best friends today. And yeah, I mean, I, you know, I found school relatively easy like the process, um, but I was kind of happy to leave school, um, go to college in Exeter, which is about sort of 10 or 11 miles from Exmouth where I grew up. Uh, and then after that, I was very happy to leave the West Country and go to university in Manchester. 
yeah, again, I, I read that you became national chess champion. So how does that work? I mean, it's almost, there was a film, I think, a, a few years ago where it was based in Kenya. I can't remember the name of the film, but it was based on a, a girl based in uh, Nairobi, I think, and she became a national chess champion. So I'm thinking that you're almost the equivalent, but based in Devon. So how, how did that come about? <laughs> Uh, sadly, not that uh, not that <laughs> level of excellence when it came to chess. I know the film that you're speaking about. Yeah, no, I mean, I just, you know, I learned to play chess at my primary school. It was very competitive. Uh, we had chess ladders and used to play in local chess tournaments. Um, in fact, I heard something on the news yesterday about schools trying to get more kids playing chess because it's good for concentration. Uh, you know, it's good for learning certain skills as well. But yeah, no, I used to play for Devon, my, you know, my home county when I was about 11 or 12. Uh, and I think one year we we won the kind of county Devon under 18s or something like that. So, yeah, I mean, I, I enjoyed it as time. I, I've tried to play chess a little bit since then, but, you know, you have to practice all the time and I haven't practiced for many years. So it's more just for fun now. And I, you know, I play with my son. But no, I, I wasn't sort of, um, you know, chess uh, whiz particularly, I'd say. Oh, okay. Okay. And you mentioned sort of going to college and then eventually getting into university. Did you have back then, you know, around about the age of 16, 17, 18, did you have a clear idea at that age what you wanted to do after after graduating? So I guess probably not a really clear idea about after graduating. I'd always wanted to be a journalist. I really liked writing and I, I think I had a flair for writing as well in different styles. So when I went to university, I studied history because I thought that a history degree would help me with certain skills in terms of research, uh, understanding complex subject matter. Obviously, you have to be a strong writer as well. And I, I really enjoyed history too. So I kind of had it in the, my, in the back of my head that I would be a journalist or a writer at some point as, of some sort, but I, I wasn't really, really focused on what I wanted to do. Oh, okay. Because I know sometimes journalists, they get involved in the student paper and that kind of stuff. I mean, were, were they things that you had the opportunity to do at Manchester? Yeah, I was. Uh, I worked on Manchester's uh, student magazines. I did quite a lot of work experience for various other publications. Um, straight after university, I did my work experience in the BBC Religion and Ethics Department, uh, and was able to get a couple of stories published on the on the website at the time. So yeah, I, I was intentional about what I wanted to do, but I don't know if I knew exactly. You know, I didn't have um, a path charted in particular. I just knew that I loved writing. Okay. Okay. And then obviously you left uh, Manchester University. I, I mean, I've, um, I didn't go to Manchester University, but I've spent a year up living in Manchester, a very cool city, big student city as well. And then you embarked on your career as a journalist. I mean, how, how did that fare for you? I enjoyed it at first. Um, you know, Manchester University changed my life um, in terms of my networks and the people that I would kind of meet there are people who are still in my network, especially my professional network today, as well as my personal network. I applied for, I was um, a magazine editor, a lifestyle magazine editor for a sort of a local publication. Uh, and then I also came across uh, Jason Njoku, who was also a student at Manchester University. And he had a student publication called Brash, and he was looking for someone to edit uh, a sort of slightly, um, a slightly different lifestyle uh, publication for Manchester's guest growing uh, professional young professionals. So yeah, I, I worked for Jason for I think maybe a year, just under a year. Um, so I had quite a lot of you know lifestyle uh, experience putting together articles and editorial copy and interviews and so forth. And it was fun as well, you know, lots of parties, lots of events, lots of opportunities 
to try new things, do new things, meet loads of people as well. So that's where I guess I really thought, you know, there might be an opportunity for me to be a journalist. Uh, and yeah, it, it was great. And as you know, as most people know, like Jason and I have probably worked together, you know, ever since. Yes. Yeah. We'll, we'll dip into that in a few moments, no doubt, because that is a really interesting story. But I guess looking back, you know, reflecting, why do you think a career in, in journalism didn't turn out for you? So I think, so the magazine folded. <laughs> oh, okay. And yeah, the magazine folded. Uh, it was a really, you know, it was difficult, you know, to get the sales right, business plan. And we were kind of young and didn't really know what we were doing. And this is before I think the internet became really big. So everything was still quite, you know, it was finding enough money just, just to get the magazines printed, you know, glossy magazines, things like that. It, it was expensive, expensive to put together. So after that, I kind of tried to carry on doing some freelance work here and there, but I actually just needed a solid job just to pay. And that's when I started thinking about public relations. Yeah. And I, I realized, um, I read an article that you were featured in and, um, I didn't realize actually that a lot of people from journalism, they kind of fall into, they fall into PR, don't they? Yes, they do. Yeah. You need a lot. There's actually a lot of overlap. I know there's, uh, rivalry between PRs and journalists, but there's also a lot of overlap in some of the work that we do. Okay. So correct me if I'm wrong, but I think your first PR job happened to be at the Natural History Museum. Is that, is that correct? No, no. I'd been working in PR for many years before Oh, that. I see. I see. I'd worked in a couple of agencies in Manchester. Uh, I did work experience in the PR agency first, just to really understand how agencies work and get the lay of the land. Then I got a job for a, in a PR agency in Manchester. Worked there for about a year and a half. Uh, still friendly with my first boss, um, who now has his own PR agency in Manchester. And then I wanted to move back down to London. I think I'd been in Manchester for about seven years uh, and was ready to move back down south. So I got a job uh, in house for a construction uh, skills company. Worked with them for a bit then moved to uh, the similar, a similar type of company, but in the creative sector, I suddenly got made redundant from there. Uh, and then I was really focused on, right, if I'm going to do PR, I want to do it in a sector that I'm really interested in. Uh, and that's how I stumbled upon a job at the Natural History Museum. And that obviously kind of ties in your passion for history as well. So that must have been a, a fantastic job to have. Amazing. I loved every single day of that job. It, it was hard work, but I mean, i felt every single day I walked into the Natural History Museum, I felt special. I felt I was lucky to be there. Uh, I was fortunate enough to have a really lovely team as well. It was out of my comfort zone. It's something I hadn't done before. So I learned loads of new things. Uh, yeah, absolutely brilliant. So what led you to leave that role and then join the Jewish Museum as a head of press there? So I, it was a contract originally for the Natural History Museum. Um, and then being there, then I guess, put me in the sort of museum comms circles. And I met someone who was looking to fill the role at the, Nat at the Jewish Museum. Uh, and it was, you know, a great opportunity. So, uh, yeah, I moved on and sort of took a step up. And then I, I guess in films, you would call this the kind of pivotal moment, you know, sort of meeting, well, obviously you'd already known Jason, who you mentioned earlier, but he persuaded you to join Orocco. Now, for those that don't know Orocco, could you sort of give the, the listeners an idea of what Orocco was back then? So Orocco back then was the first uh, platform, online platform to stream Nollywood movies. So it started off as a YouTube channel. Uh, and then at the point that Jason had asked me to join Orocco, 
um, I, they had secured their first round of investment and were able to build out their own platform, their own app, um, which is what you know became Morocco TV. So I joined just after that and was part of the kind of, I guess, global expansion. Yes, you joined as global head of comms, which sounds very exciting. It sounds like that job was a lot of fun as well. I mean, can you tell us about some of the different types of people that you were and and different types of companies that you were working with at the time? Honestly, it was hard work, but brilliant as well. We were really, um, it was uncharted territory. There'd never been an online Nollywood platform before, and there certainly hadn't been um, a venture capital backed company that had so much buzz. Uh, and we were able to create loads of buzz as well. So my job was really in two parts. I spent a lot of time working on the kind of consumer side of things. So working with Nollywood stars and promoting Iroko to consumer target audiences. So that was doing things like uh, taking Uche Jumbo to an award ceremony in New York, building the brand there, going to South Africa with Mama G and doing, I think we did a DVD uh, launch over there because whilst Iroko was online, you know, a huge audience still used DVDs. So we, you know, launched DVDs and did a lot of work in South Africa as well. So that was one half of my job. And then the other half of my job was doing more of the kind of corporate press, um, raising Jason and Joku's profile, raising Iroko's profile, uh, getting Iroko and the likes of CNN and BBC and The Economist and so forth as well. So it, it was a really varied job and I, I got to meet some amazing people. And were you based still here in the UK or were you sort of in Nigeria? Where were you based most of the time? I was based in the UK for a bit and then I moved to New York for a bit to help also set up the New York function. Uh, And then I spent quite a lot of time in Nigeria as well. So I I spent most of my time in the UK, but spent a a lot of time on the continent. Okay, fantastic. Yeah, that job sounds so exciting. And as I said back at the beginning, I think that's when I bumped into you at an event because I was working for... Yeah, it's probably about that. Yeah, the African search firm. So obviously you were doing this role for quite a number of years. And then tell us about what happened then, because obviously you decided then to go up and set up your own company, which is Wimbart. But how, why did that happen and how did that happen? So Wimbart was never really part of my big plan. It was, again, Jason's idea. I think it had come from the fact that he had been approached by other founders in the tech space, in the African tech space, who had asked him if he could sub- subcontract me to them because they also wanted to raise their profile both locally and internationally as well. So it was Jason who saw a gap in the market um, for a PR person to basically service the growing African tech space. Um, me, I probably would have just stayed at Iroko. I loved my job. It was interesting. I saw a, quite a long-term future there. But uh, Jason is extraordinarily entrepreneurial and very, very good at uh, spotting opportunities uh, and I think because we'd been friends for so long and worked together for so long, he was kind of happy to set me free. Uh, so he suggested that I set up, up my own agency uh, and it went from there. Uh, he was my first client. So I guess I had a buffer, which was really incredibly helpful. And yeah, it's just when Bart just grew from there. I was when I officially left Iroko and started up as a, a freelancer, I was seven months pregnant. So the company was really set up from the kitchen table. And then I thought, well, maybe I'll just freelance for a bit. You know, I've got a newborn baby. Um, so I had, you know, Iroko as a client and then I got another one and another one. And then I had to start saying no to potential work because I couldn't do it all by myself. And I remember Jason saying, 
why would you turn down free new business? That makes no sense, <laughs> um, which is very, very sensible advice. So at that stage, I decided to get serious about a business uh, and hired Maria and we've just grown from there. That's so interesting. I guess for many businesses, when they start off, it's quite nerve wracking because you're not quite sure when the money's coming in and how long each contract's going to be. But in your case, I guess, as you said, you had the buffer of Rocco there. And I know when I was working for the African search firm, we also had that buffer. We almost survived off the back of just one client for, for most part of the first couple of years. So it sounds like it was quite similar to the situation that you had at Wimbart. So those first couple of years also sort of had a new baby as well, growing the company. How easy or how difficult was it to penetrate the African market, particularly being based over here? I know you did say that, you know, you got a couple of referrals here and there, but outside of those companies, you know, when you're pitching to some of these African companies that are on ground and you're based in the UK, how difficult was that to, to win those pitches? It wasn't. Uh, I'm not going to lie. Uh, <laughs> the work that I'd done with Arocco spoke for itself. Yeah. Uh, Jason was amazing that he'd introduced me to some people as well. Um, but I, we never really pitched for work. All of our work is inbound. Um, I'm a big advocate of if you do good work consistently, then other work will come to you. So it wasn't difficult doing it from London. I did you know, keep making trips back to Nigeria. Uh, my network was pretty good, uh, made sure that when people were over in London, I took time out to meet them. Even, you know, quite often I would meet new business uh, prospects or people in my network and take my son with me. Um, so I was conscious of the fact that I had to you know, make an effort and get my, myself out there and be in the room and be present. But early days, Wimbart, and even today, we let the work speak for itself. So people would contact us. That is so rare, isn't it? And that's such a brilliant position to be in where you're getting inbound work coming in and you're having to say no to work. I mean, that's just, that's amazing. Now, I did read that somebody called Ron Hope was quite influential in your business success. And I just wanted to sort of explore what part he played in the evolution of the business over the years, because I've sensed that he's, he's actually passed away. So what part did he play in the, in the business? So uh, he was my dad and uh, my co-founder. And he was the one who did a lot of the behind the scenes work for Wimba early days. So with invoicing, making sure the books were balanced, um, you know, kind of administrative and legal documentation. Uh, so I guess a sort of informal COO, really. Um, so he was, yeah, he was my business partner. I see. I see. Yeah, sorry, I didn't know he was your your dad. I thought he was your, your uncle, but he um, also had a career in the police service, didn't he, as well? Yes, uh, he had, uh, I'd say, a pretty illustrious career in, in the police. Uh, he was the first ever black inspector in the Metropolitan Police. Uh, he set up the Black Police Association. Uh, and when he retired, he was borough commander of Islington. So um, one of the more, I guess, prominent police officers in the Met, but, you know, made all the more exception, I guess, because he was one of the uh, one of the very earliest uh, black police officers in the Met as well. Yeah, paving the way for those who've come after. So that's uh, that's that's fantastic. So yeah, here we are today. Wimbart has gone from strength to strength. I mean, how how many staff do you have now in the company? Oh, I think we're about twenty five now. Twenty five. 
That's fantastic. And um, you set up the business back in 2014, 2015. And I know sort of earlier on, most of the staff that you had working for you, most of them had sort of some sort of connection to Africa. Is that still the case or is it, you know, do you have other people working for you now? Uh, I would say the vast majority of people that work at Wimbut have a connection to Africa. Um, but, you know, we have people from Jamaica. We have people from India. Uh, we have, you know, British born, like Nigerians, a real mix, I have to say. And I'm just fascinated by your own journey. I mean, particularly in PR, where, you know, communication is absolutely the key to everything. I read elsewhere that you've got a bit of a fear for public speaking. Um, Now, I don't know if that's still the case or if that was the case earlier on, but how have you got to this point in your career where you're so successful, you're winning awards, not only just for yourself, but for the business as a whole, and you had or you still have this this fear of public speaking? I still have it. You still have Um, it? Okay. Yeah. (laughs) It's, uh, but I forced myself to do it. I think you, you, you go from being, you know, an operator. So, you know, a professional, so a PR professional who does day-to-day work to being a business leader, it's quite a big leap. And I think when you get to that sort of business leader stage, you can't sort of pick and choose some of the activities that need to happen in order for you to keep growing and building the business as well. So you have to put yourself in positions that do make you feel uncomfortable or you have to really push yourself is you can't just turn around and say, I don't feel like doing that today. Uh, You just have to, you know, keep pushing on. So I think the thing is with PR people is that we're supposed to be behind the scenes. You know, we're supposed to be showcasing our clients. We're supposed to give them the tools and tricks of the trades to speak with journalists, to communicate. Um, So people are always surprised when I say I fear public speaking. Um, Just because I guess I'm used to being, you know, (laughs) in the shadows. Okay. And and how do you get through it? I mean, you know, I'm sure there are other people that are listening that also have a, a, a fear of public speaking. What techniques do you use? I know, I know breathing is, is one for quite a lot of people, but do you have any other techniques that you use to get over the initial um, sort of fears? No techniques that are particularly intellectual. I literally just force myself to do it. Uh, I, a lot of the time I think, you know, the adrenaline helps. So once you've started and you're in you know, a conversation like we're having, it's fine. Um, I think that when I talk about areas that I'm very passionate about or really knowledgeable about, then that makes it easier because then I kind of get into a groove. Um, I'm conscious of the fact that I tend to speak very quickly as well. So I have to be conscious about the fact that I have to slow down how I speak. Um, so I, I, I try and be quite critical of how I present myself and try and improve on it. But I don't always listen back to my interviews as well. Okay, okay. And aside from that, you know, aside from public speaking, what, what else have you learned about leadership over the years as your, as your business has got bigger and bigger? Because, you, you know, you said you didn't necessarily expect yourself to be a leader or, or an entrepreneur when you were at university. So how, how has that journey been? It's definitely been tough, but I've enjoyed it as well. I think that I've learned to become more, I guess, opportunistic. So trying to see where opportunities lie and really go for them Um, rather than just let things happen to me. I make sure I make things happen, not just for myself, but for the company and for people within the company as well. I'd like to think that I'm quite an empathetic leader, uh, supportive of my team. I've learned how the art of having difficult conversations, both with, you know, members of the team, but also clients as well. 
um, try not to shy away from things too much as well. Uh, those are some of the key things that I've learned about leadership as well over the years. And I think there's probably still a lot more for me to learn. It's definitely a, it's a journey that doesn't really stop. And do, do you enjoy it? I mean, you've got to the point now we've got a team of 25. Do, do you actually enjoy being a leader or is it still quite, you know, is it still quite stressful? Mixture of the two, I would say. There's some <laughs> days I enjoy it. Some days I enjoy it. Other days I think, oof, the burden of responsibility is a lot. It really is a lot. And, you know, over the years, for example, when we've had members of the team and they're not quite operating at the level we need to, we need them to, and they're struggling, and then we put things in place for them, and that's not working out. And I think sometimes I haven't been decisive enough about just sort of saying to people, it's not really working out. Uh, and then there's been a challenge that because that person's not really pulling their weight, they've brought the rest of the team down. And I probably didn't handle that as as I should have, should have and probably should have nipped it in the bud a little bit sooner as well. Now, I, I've been out of the African market for six, seven years now, so I'm not so sort of up to speed with what's going on. But I do remember when I was going to South Africa, going to Lagos and other places, people on the speaking circuit kept saying, oh, you know, Lagos is going to be the, the next Dubai in the next 20 years. And 10 years later, I don't know how far we are from that being the case, but where do you see Africa over the next 10 years? And I know I, know I say Africa as a, obviously as a continent, but um, how far off do you see the continent being, you know, the, the next Dubai? Because I, in, in my mind, it's, quite, it's still quite far off. I'd agree. Uh, obviously, it's different areas, you know, different parts of Africa sort of seeing different areas of growth. For the speaker circuit, Lagos certainly isn't anything like Dubai, I don't think. Um, it's actually quite difficult to travel to Nigeria, you know, in terms of visas and just getting into the country is quite, quite tricky. Whereas I, I don't believe, I haven't been to Dubai for a few years, but I don't believe Dubai has the same issues in terms of travel. Um, but at the same time, you know, Lagos is also the hub for business not just for Nigeria, not just for West Africa, but for a huge chunk of the continent as well. Uh, a lot of deals get done in in um, in Nigeria. A lot of entrepreneurs live there. A lot of big business and corporates exist there as well. So it's probably not that close to Dubai yet, but the continent is definitely seeing a, you know, a surge in business and opportunities as well. And not in a kind of, you know, Africa rising, you know, trope, I think that's kind of a, a sort of a, a lazy lens to to frame it with, but I think that you know there is growth and increasing opportunity and prosperity, but probably not happening as quickly as some of maybe the other emerging markets that we've seen, such as Dubai, for example, or even say China or India. Yeah, so I mean, so it sounds like it's going to take more than ten years, from what you're saying. I think so, but. I think it's not not going to happen. It just maybe will take a, a little bit longer. And even things in terms of infrastructure, you know, you need really solid infrastructure to then, for especially technology companies to layer and build and grow on top of that as well. And, you know, especially I think in, in Nigeria and other, you know, African countries, you've, you have got a growing uh, elite and there's, there's wealth and money there, but there's a lot of very, very, very poor people as well. Great. Now, what's on the horizon for, for Wimbart? I mean, aside from, you know, expansion, maybe going into different markets. I know most of your business at the moment is coming out of Nigeria, but what else is on the horizon for your business? Yeah. So as you say, you know, traditionally, our, a lot of our work has come from Nigeria, but we've also uh, been able to attract clients from across, across the continent over the last few years. So we have quite a few Kenyan clients, 
uh, and they're expanding in East Africa. So we do press and comms work in Rwanda, Tanzania, Uganda. We've seen a lot more interest as well in North African um, companies and, and venture firms as well. So we've done a lot more work in Egypt and Morocco. Uh, that might even then spill, spill into, say, Dubai and you know, com- North African companies trying to engage with the um, you know, GCC area. Um, we'll also likely introduce sort of complementary products and services, uh, communications-based, but you know, go a little bit beyond PR as well. I think traditionally we've done... Uh, we've, you know, we've kind of just been helpful to our clients and done a lot of things outside of day-to-day PR. And I think we'll probably start building, you know, more structure around those services as well. So we can formalize them a bit more and continue to grow and expand the business. And then I also heard that um, potentially you want to become a, an investor in some of these businesses as time goes on as well. I mean, how uh, close is that to becoming a sort of a reality? It's more of a mid to long term plan, I think. Um, it's not something that we've, you know, formalised yet. But obviously, we're fortunate that we come across so many, you know, tech startups. So we have potential good deal flow. It's just whether or not we then look into kind of building a small fund, what that would look like, and how we would deploy it, etc. As well. So that's probably more of a mid to long term plan. Okay. Um, because yeah, I mean, I guess you hear of a lot of these uh, fantastic, exciting businesses, you know, much much sooner than your average Joe in London or up in Manchester. So that could be a, a great source of, of future revenues. Mm. I know we're, we're running out of time. So one question that we always ask people that come on the show, obviously you've had a, a lot of success in your career, but how much of that success do you think is down to either luck, hard work or talent? If you had to choose one of, of the three, what would you choose? Hmm. Good question. I'm, guessing most people say a mixture of all three. Uh, I have been lucky. I, you know, I was lucky to meet Jason, uh, but I, you know, we both had to work hard at building our friendship and professional, uh, you know, how we work together professionally as well. Uh, and I think we're quite talented people. So that's just, on, you know, one lens. I think that, you know, I was quite talented in terms of writing and then I became, you know, grew my talents as well through hard work. Um, and I've been, you know, again, l- lucky to meet some really cool people who've been either clients or friends or both along the way as well. But if I had to choose one, I think probably hard work. Hard work. Okay. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Most people do say a mixture of the three. Great stuff. Now, we obviously found out earlier that you started your career as a journalist. I mean, if you hadn't started Wimbart and, uh, you know, if it, if it wasn't as successful as it is now, what else do you think you would be doing at this point? Good question. Um, and sadly, I, I really don't know. <laughs> um, because now it's difficult to look back on it because now I, I really love business and businesses and business leaders. I find them fascinating and I love hearing their stories. So even sometimes, for example, if I'm kind of tired and I've got to get on a new business call and I think, Oof, I don't know if I feel like it. Within three minutes, me speaking to another CEO and interrogating the brief and understanding what they're looking for, you know, I get really overexcited in terms of chatting and flow of ideas. We could do this or we could do that. And I know that I start speaking really quickly and they can feel my intensity and my passion for their company and everything. So I think I would probably do something in business, probably with smaller businesses, because I find, you know, I love the energy of business owners rather than 
corporate life is not as uh, not as exciting or interesting to me. So yeah, but I, I, I don't know, in, in all honesty, I've been working in PR for so long, and I've been running my own business for eight years now. Anything else would be if I said something like, Oh, I want to go into something creative, whatever, it would be with rose tinted spectacles. Yeah, yeah. And do you think that, you know, if you had the same level of success, but in the UK, working with UK clients, do you think it would be as rewarding? Or would it, ju- would it just be different? What do you think about that? just be different i don't I, I don't know if it's the case of just rewarding i think we're not providing a charitable service you know there's nothing you know we're, we're working with businesses in africa and providing them with the service as well um so i find that rewarding and i would think i would apply that if i was working with uk or european companies as well you know we're, we're helping them meet their business goals um so i think i would find that rewarding um but i i like the sector that i work in i like the fact that we've been able to kind of carve a niche uh so i find that interesting and I think that that helps us that's helped us to scale but I I don't know if it's a case of being rewarding particularly or any more or less rewarding I think anyone who builds a business and manages to pay salaries every month and expand or move into other areas I think they must find it quite rewarding and even every time if I go to my hairdresser um, I'm interested in hearing about her business Um, so it's her growing the business, I think that's the rewarding part, not the Africa part necessarily. Yeah, that, that makes sense. That makes sense. And um, I mean, just finally, you specialize in working with tech businesses. And I just wanted to get your your take on the whole Twitter thing at the moment. You know, they've obviously had a new owner over the last year or so. They've kind of rebranded. If you had been working with Twitter over the last year or so, what would you have advised them to have done differently? Well, that's a massive question. Um, You know, from a business perspective, they should have just treated their staff better. Uh, I think they made their whole Ghana team redundant, didn't pay them, didn't communicate properly. Like, I think that's awful. Um, It doesn't seem to be much corporate governance at Twitter or X or whatever it is now. Uh, And I think that that led to a lot of ill will. Um, but I think that they probably needed to maybe start removing Elon Musk from brands, Twitter or X, whatever it is, sooner rather than later. Um, but, you know, maybe there is a grand scheme. Maybe there is. It seems odd to spend $40 billion on something and then kind of rip its heart and soul out. But, you know, I'm not on that level of tech CEO understanding. So, yeah. But I, I don't think that they've managed things well. Yeah. I mean, even just the thing that you've just said, is it, is, are they called tweets? Is it Twitter? Is it called X? I mean, just from a PR perspective, that seems quite messy to me. Yeah, absolutely. It seems messy and unclear. But then I think, oof, you know, how much how much do I care? Well, I care a bit, actually, because I've been engaged with Twitter for a very long time. You know, of course, every kind of social platform is going to have its, its faults. Um, but, you know, I've, I've always found Twitter quite engaging and useful and interesting. Uh, going forward, we'll see. As I say, I mean, it, that maybe there is a bigger plan that we just haven't been, that we haven't bought into yet. But um, intriguing, I guess. Intriguing indeed. Well, I know you've you've been nominated for yet another award. So all the best with that. That's the PR Week Award 2023. So fingers crossed for you for that. Oh, thank you. No problem. And thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, it was a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me today. I hope you enjoyed that. It was a little shorter than what we would usually record, but Jessica was super busy. But I also think she is also a super effective 
communicator. She's got a really effective communication style. You can clearly tell that she works in PR. I mean, I just can't get around the fact that she has a fear of public speaking. You would never know it, would you? And I'm also glad that she finds the whole Twitter thing confusing. You know, is it Twitter? Is it X? Do you still send tweets? Or, you know, what, what do you call them now? I thought I was the only one. Anyway, if you know, please do let us know. Send us a message. If you like the show, also send us a message. Send us a review. Hit us up on the socials. The email address is howicrushedit at gmail.com. And catch you on the next show. <laughs>